This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, Dr. Graham Downing is in the United Kingdom. He'll join me momentarily to discuss vaccines. Uh, Robert De Niro, terrific actor, has now stated publicly that he has very deep regrets about dropping the documentary film Vaxxed. Uh, from his uh, Tribeca Film Festival. Of course, that features, um, some would say, discredited uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield from the UK, who uh, published in Lancet uh, many years ago about a possible link between the MMR vaccine and autism. He never said there was a causation. I don't even think he said there was a definite correlation, but he said, hey, there's something going on here. Let's look at it further. Of course, then Lancet retracted uh, that article, and uh, it was a concerted effort to discredit Dr. Wakefield, who was stripped of his license, and he now resides in Texas. However, this vaxxed uh, uh, documentary is gaining tremendous currency, and uh, so we'll discuss, we'll have a rational discussion about vaccines. Uh, De Niro uh, has an adult son with autism, uh, by the way. Anyway, so Dr. Downing um, will be talking about his position on vaccines, the flu vaccine in particular, and we'll discuss whether vaccines are safe and effective. Uh, At long last, I finally have an air date for season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Very good news. Season four will debut across Canada on Vision TV on Monday, June the 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Mark this down. Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. And there'll be six brand new episodes coming your way. They'll air every Monday at 9 p.m through Monday, August the 1st. Again, Vision TV, Season 4, The Conspiracy Show, Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern. That's the debut. Six brand new episodes airing every Monday at 9 through Monday, August 1st. Okay, let's talk vaccines. Dr. Graham Downing is a consultant in neuromusculoskeletal and functional medicine. He graduated from King's College, London University, where he trained in the clinical sciences and molecular biology and attended the Randall Institute as a research student while still under the directorship of Dr. Wilkins, Nobel Prize winner for his co-discovery of DNA, 
and the European Institute of Health and Medical Sciences, Surrey University, where he received an M, uh, a master's degree with a specialist area of research in psychoeuroimmunology in the clinical practice. Dr. Downing was invited to read for a PhD at Oxford's leading research institute, Sir William Dunn School of Pathology, but decided on a clinical career instead. He's one of only two doctors in Europe that have received training at consultant level in diagnosis and treatment of internal medical disorders at the Texas Chiropractic College USA and Advanced Wilderness Medicine. Dr. Graham Downing, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Very well, thank you. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Great title. Flu, of course, F-L-U. Um, how do you... How do you deal with, with colleagues in, in your field, in orthodox medicine, if I can use that term, uh, over this whole issue of vaccinations? Because here in North America, we're told repeatedly, the science is in, it's over, there's no more discussion. You can't even have a debate, really, on the radio here. How, how, do you, how is it over there in the UK? Well, I mean, it kind of started over here in the UK many, many years ago. This, this, this debate... Uh, for want of a better term or, or word, is um, has been going on for like nearly 200 years. Uh, I mean, I'm in functional medicine, so I'm not an allopathic doctor. But um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's two types of people. There's people that are open and there's people that are shut and that's it. So most people in allopathic medicine, orthodox medicine, are quite shut to this and probably a fraction of a percent of those doctors have actually ever done any research. You, you, once you start to look at the research, your opinion changes. And I've been involved in science and healthcare for many, many, many years. And um, I don't just accept what I'm told. I, I look at the research and I investigate for myself. And you'll find that those are the doctors that will eventually step out and say, look, this doesn't look right. There's something not quite right here. And the way that I explain it, um, well, a good way to explain it is when you have uh, an, a hypothesis, an idea in science, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to say, right, here's my idea. And then you're supposed to attack that idea and try and knock it down and see if it stands up. And if it stands up, you say, right, well, we accept this idea. And, and a good example of that would be gravity. Because with gravity, you look at a tree, an apple falls down, and you say, right, okay, there's something moving that apple. And then wherever you go in the world and whatever type of tree you do and whatever side of the globe you're on, that hypothesis pretty much stands up. You'd never really see an apple go the other way. Now, the problem with vaccination and, and vaccine science is the hypothesis that it prevents infection, um, that it's relatively safe, uh, and that it has had made a massive impact on our health. When you actually look at the data, unfortunately, it doesn't stand up. In other words... When you start to look at the data, you start to see some of these apples going the wrong way. And if that's the case, regardless of what your stance is, if that's the case, then the hypothesis has to be challenged and has to be changed. We need a new idea. And unfortunately, staying with the old idea is costing us dearly, not just in, in dollars and pounds, but it's costing us dearly in our health and also in the lives of children. Uh, give us a sense, an overview of your philosophy on immunization or vaccinations in terms of efficacy uh, and safety. Uh, do you believe, for example, that that uh, some vaccines are effective and some are safe or none are effective or none are safe? I think that the problem you've got is you need, uh, and I said this, I did a, did a conference uh, just a, a week ago, 
and it was incredibly well attended. We had standing room, well, not standing room, people were sitting on the floor uh, and sort of, you know, falling out the door to try and get space. And this was like, I gave one of these lectures at like nine o'clock in the morning and it was incredibly well attended. And the problem you've got, and I try to get across, is you need honesty in science. Now, when you have money involved in a subject, um, in any, any area, and human beings, you're gonna get a problem. And the biggest problem we have in, in pharmaceutical research, uh, medical science research, is honesty. Uh, this has been looked at by experts uh, in this field. And these experts have said time and time again that really when you look at the literature, you look at the science literature that's used to support medicine and, and vaccine, vaccine technology and vaccinology, I suppose you could call it, probably you'll be lucky if 10% of that stuff that's published is accurate and honest. And this is the problem. You have, you're trying to sort out what is effective, what is right, what is safe, but you have very little data, very good, very little good, honest data coming through that can help you make that decision. It, to answer your question, based on what I said right at the beginning, I don't think the, um, the, the, the philosophy of vaccines, uh, be it that it prevents disease, is accurate. I think that uh, this, is a, this is a problem. I think it's a problem because of what I've just said with the fact that the, there is corrupt data. And I just don't think as a philosophy it stands up anymore. In terms of its safety, I don't think there's any doubt there's any doubt that anyone looks at this and really looks at it and looks at the literature, the vaccines are not safe. Now you can divine, you could you could delineate the level of safety. You could you could argue um, what that means, and you could argue what that means in relation to any possible um, benefit from vaccine. But then you go down the line, and you only go down the line of science. Say, well, where is the benefit? Where's the research that proves the benefit? And that is a conversation that that opens up a whole new doorway because when I was at university I was told that they're great they're safe just get on with it and when you look at the data that doesn't seem to stand up uh, the the uh, the preservatives uh, that are used <clears throat> in in vaccines uh, people talk about thimerosal and they talk about aluminum and and in certain jurisdictions we're told no those things have been removed uh, what concerns you most in terms of the ingredients in vaccinations? Is it the preservatives? Is it something else? Well, I mean, when I was, I was, I had a busy day today and, um, and I thought, well, I'm going to speak later. And I thought, where do you start with this? And it is such a vast subject. It involves pretty much every area of science, nearly. Um, and it's so huge. It's where do you where do you start with this? Especially if you're a, a parent, because it's such a voluminous amount of information. And look, and then add to that the fact that the skullduggery that goes on it does go on. And I spoke um, in detail about this at the last conference that I went to, uh, quoting published papers. But I, I, I'm not happy with any of the things in vaccine. <laughs> I'm not happy with the um, inactivated viruses or the attenuated viruses. I'm not happy with the, uh, the I mean, I, I have lists of ingredients in front of me. And, you know, it would make the average person's, you know, hair curl if it hasn't curled already, or their toes curl or, or whatever. It's inc I mean, it's just the, the thought of this stuff, you would never, if someone was to pour a cocktail and put most of this stuff in it, you know, all the formalin, the aluminum phosphate, the aluminum hydroxide, the amino acids, 
polysorbate 20, polysorbate 80, neomycin, all these sort of things. If you stuck them in a drink and said take them, people would think you're nuts. And then you get this stuff and you shoot it straight into a newborn child. It's, it's, it's lunacy. I heard someone mention this today and I, and I totally agree that 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, people will look back and just think, what the hell were they doing? What were they thinking when they, did, when they put this stuff into children? Um, apart from the fact that you, you, would, you would have to be nuts to drink it yourself, the reality is, is there's significant science, significant science that shows that these things are not are not just not good for you. They're just not good to put in a human being. Dr. Graham S. Downing is with us. He's a consultant in neuromusculoskeleton and functional medicine, a graduate from King's College, London University, where he trained in clinical sciences and molecular biology. Um, uh, let me. Uh, we're going to head into a break here momentarily, but let me give you the lay of the land here in Ontario, where I am perched. And uh, this just came down recently. Our, uh, our lovely provincial government wants to send parents uh, like me who have not had their children vaccinated, uh, and we can, uh, we can apply for an exemption based on conscience or, or religious, uh, on religious grounds. Uh, all of those parents, uh, and luckily my children attend a, a, a private school, but if you attend a public school here in the province and you want to get an exemption, you now have to go to or complete a course. Uh, I call it a re-education camp. Uh, and uh, there you will, uh, you will be subjected to all of this, you know, the, the pro-vaccination uh, case, the data, the reports, and so forth. Uh, and you have to sit there and listen to all of that as if parents haven't already done their due diligence. Uh, and then after that, and I'm not sure how long the course is, and this, this, is, a, this is a proposed bill, although they have a majority <laughs> government, it will pass. It, it's not law yet. Uh, then after that, after all of being subjected to that, if you still wish to exempt your children uh, from vaccinations, uh, you can. Uh, but they are at this, at this moment expelling children all over the province, uh, all over Canada from public schools because their vaccination records aren't up to, uh, up to snuff and so forth. It is just getting really nasty here. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you know, I, I literally have a mass of data and it's like, it's crowding it in my head to think, well, where do you start with this first? I'll tell, the main... let me, sorry, let me just jump in, uh, uh, Dr. Downing. We will, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, we'll pick up on that point. Stay with us as we discuss the case against vaccinations right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Dr. Graham Downing. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, F-L-U, as in flu. And um, did you get any cease and desist orders for using that title <laughs> from the estate of Ken Kesey? Yeah, that was, I mean, that went down really well. But can I tell you what astonished me is that, and maybe this shouldn't astonish me, is I talked to a, a packed room, uh, which was filmed. You know, it's going to go on some kind of disc, and I think they charge a few dollars for it, and it'll probably go on free onto YouTube down the line, is that these, most of these people were well-informed about various 
sort of political things, geopolitics. But people were stunned when I presented data, and that kind of stunned me. I thought that people knew um, the kind of stuff that I knew about vaccines and the science, but obviously they don't. And it was incredible because there were some very well-informed speakers from all over the world. I'm not sure if there's anyone. There may have been someone from Canada, certainly the States and, and, and other countries. And I was absolutely stunned that some of these people have never heard some of the things I've said. Because the reason why I titled it One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is because when you look at the science and then you look at what the orthodox physicians are doing, it, it doesn't make any sense and when you try to talk to people about this, you, you tend to think, I, I think I'm in a lunatic asylum because the science is so clear on this. And the flu is a very uh, interesting uh, vaccine to talk about. Do you want me to talk about that vaccine? And I can the tell you flu some vaccine, facts yes, please, yes. Well, once uh, let me tell you this, and then we'll talk about informed consent, which I think something what you should be, <clears throat> excuse me, really aware of, a weapon that you can use. Uh, some of the work that I do, I'm an expert witness, so I understand how these things work and what trips up doctors in, in terms of informed consent. Please remind me of that if I forget. But I looked at research and there was, um, we know that the damage done from vaccines, they, they meant to, doctors are meant to report any abnormal reaction to a vaccine to something called the VAERS database. They have them in the States called the VAERS database. It may be called something different in Canada and in the UK. But it basically, any adverse events, like the baby dies or, the, or you know, something terrible happens. And we were looking at this research, and we know, we pretty much know it's been underreported, maybe one in 100. And then I looked at research which showed uh, a disease that was being tracked. And this disease is a kind of uh, disease or a kind of problem you would associate um, with vaccines. So therefore, it should have been something that should have been alerted to this VAERS database. So you've got two things going on here. You've got the database over here for adverse events, and then you've got which this disease should be reported to if they see it in a child of a certain age because it's linked to vaccines. And then you've got this disease being tracked by researchers. Now, when they toted up all the stats on it, what they found was that the disease was being reported, underreported to the database, to the to the number of one in 200, which is astounding, which means for every um, 200 cases of this particular problem turning up in the GP's practice, they were only reporting one. So we had, through that, we had a measure of how much underreporting is done by these GPs. And then if you apply that to the statistics from this VAERS database for flu, you get an astounding uh, an astounding number of injuries that come from this one simple flu vaccine they give to the kids. I'm not sure what they call it in the States. I think it might be called, uh, in, sorry, in Canada, it might be flu mist or have you, have, has anyone approached you yet for, to talk about your children having this where they, they, in, they spray a flu vaccine up the nose of, of, of your children? Uh, I think I've seen that at their, uh, their pediatrician's office, but, um, and they're constantly calling us to remind us that our vaccination uh, re records aren't up to date. And I say thank well, you let, for that, but no, no. Well, they haven't let pushed me give it you, they haven't um, There's pushed lots it. of different reported effects. <clears throat> when they tell you about the vaccine, as they do here, they go, it's safe, there's no problem, don't worry about it. And they don't tell you, because I went through every single thing that's been reported for this vaccine, and then I applied the weighting that I told you about earlier based on science. You get things like diplegia, which is par paralysis of corresponding parts of the body. Uh, that's averaging oh, something around maybe one, in the States, maybe one a month, one child a month. 
Then you get what's called post-ictal paralysis. That's about one a month. Uh, and then you get Guillain-Barre syndrome, which most people have heard of. And it's a kind of progressive paralysis, the kind of like a quicksand of paralysis that starts in the, um, in the distal limbs and then progressively moves centrally into your body. And it can arrest your breathing. And you, you may need assistant breathing. Uh, people usually recover. Some people may not recover. Or some people may recover with some kind of paralysis. Now, but, bear in mind this flu vaccine is given to you with the, with the no one's telling you it's causing a problem. I've estimated that since they started to, in the States alone, give that, that 42 children per month, every single month, have suffered Guillain-Barre syndrome as a result of that vaccine. And But Dr. Downing, you know what the, the, the counter argument to that is, but the odds of suffering that side effect are so infinitesimal because of the number of children being inoculated compared to the number of children coming down with that, uh, with that side effect. How, how do we counter that argument? Well, the reality is when they talk about flu, what they, ha they held a conference, um, the CDC, and um, I think it was Dr. Nowak who, who headed up the conference, and he said, look, we aren't shifting enough flu vaccine, so we need to do something about this. And the whole conference was about how do they get people to take this? And effectively what they said was they're going to do a scare, scare tactics, and they, they were talking to people in the press saying that you must use very, you know, must use words which will motivate people like this very severe, more severe than last year, very dangerous, even though none of this was particularly true. And they drilled up, they came to some ridiculous figure of deaths associated with flu, which is obviously the reason why you'd want to protect yourself. And they, what it was, they, they cr created a term called flu associated. What that mean was whatever you got, whatever happened to you, if they could find flu somewhere related to it, then that was counted in the number of the deaths. So I'm going to give you a really silly example here. But say you say something fell on your head and killed you, and you had flu at the same time, then you probably would have been counted in that, in the in the stats to say that you died with a flu-associated death. Now they didn't explain the mechanisms of that. They just told you just thought, oh my God, all these people have died from flu, and it's just a it's just a pack of lies. So, and, and the reality really, the, the thinking of giving children this vaccine isn't necessarily to protect the child. What it was thought to do was to protect older people because they, they saw children as a reservoir of a problem for flu, which may be given to older people. And of course, the flu vaccine is known not to work in older people. So this was a, a kind of way of protecting older people. And the reality is, is that parents weren't told that. And also parents weren't told the truth about the associated deaths um, over inflating this number of and, and this, this severe reaction with flu because it's, in, it's a complete opposite when you look at the proper stats. And the CDC um, published data on the effectiveness of this vaccine. And it, you couldn't make this up. I mean, it was just, it's mind-boggling. It's something like the effectiveness of this vaccine, and bearing in mind the CDC has been caught out lying. And so... You know, this is the best they can do. It was something like minus 23%, which means it doesn't work. So you're vaccinating your child against um, for something that they aren't going to be protected from in the first place. The vaccine doesn't work. The figures are overinflated. And the only thing that is the only thing that happens from that is that children could be injured in an incredible number and killed. And I estimate probably around 2,800 children have died as a result of using this vaccine, using the waiting that I described earlier. What For is what? It, what is if, when, it, when they say that a vaccine is effective, what do they mean by effective? Do they mean that it is simply effectively, it is effective in creating an antibody for a specific disease? 
but I mean, that doesn't necessarily prove that it can prevent a person from contracting that disease. What do they mean by effective? Well, I mean, you just you just answered the question eloquently. The reality is, is that this is all based on raising antibody titers, raising a particular arm of the immune system in the body to fight infection, which, you know, sounds great in theory. But the reality is, I just showed you um, how effective that vaccine was. It was minus, which means it wasn't effective, wasn't effective at all. And the reality is, is that, you know, you can get, um, they've done studies, there's children and there's, there's animal studies, which, which don't have an ability to mount an antibody response. And they successfully deal with significant infection because you have many arms to your, to your um, immune response and antibodies are just one of them. And the reality is, is that doesn't necessarily mean because you raise those antibodies that you're going to defend off an infection. The two just don't necessarily um, equal each other. So you're absolutely right. All they're really saying is it raises antibodies in, you know, in a test tube somewhere. But the reality is, is that I think there's a case going through at the moment which showed that one of the, I won't name the manufacturer, but they gerrymandered the data. They mixed in uh, other antibodies to try and show, prove that their vaccine was quite strong. And in, in reality, it wasn't. And if you go on the web, you can easily find that information. You're, you're surrounded by corruption and you're surrounded by fake information. And you're surrounded by people who are in officialdom, who you should be able to trust, to be honest. And it's been proven time and time again that they're just not being honest and trustworthy. And it's, it's disgraceful. This goes all around the world. How are vaccines, the uh, the safety or, or effectiveness of vaccines studied? We're always told in, in science, uh, of, you know, the scientific method and that the, the gold standard is the double blind uh, study. So when they have a vaccine, I mean, is there a control group? Is there uh, a meaningful, you know, a control group? Uh, do they do they test vaccines using the double blind study method? Wow. I mean, so first off, how honest is the research? You know, and you're going to hear me bang on about the same thing because this is so important. How honest is the research? The research is not honest. As I've just said, you'd be lucky. You could go to the, the, the most leading medical journals in the world, including the Lancet and the New, New England Journal of Medicine, and their own data um, state strongly that well over 90% of those published papers are not trustworthy. So... The information that, whether it's double-blind, single-blind, random, whatever, the information that your doctors are relying on, your GPs, your consultants, is pretty much bogus. It's pretty much bogus. Now, when they do these trials, um, what you should do is you should examine and watch that patient for, you know, for many, many weeks, months, and years, and you should look down the line and see what effect putting the stuff into your into a patient has for example uh, autoimmune disease we, we there is significant evidence now that shows that um, the animal viruses the animal bugs if you like that are in that are in the vaccines that they can't screen and they can't remove uh, is, is linked to autoimmunity you have the new um, the new dip, the diploid the uh, human cell line vi um, vaccines which have human um, retroviruses in them and these things will cause problems in the body you have dna floating around in these uh, vaccines and the dna is i mean it's incredible let me let me give you an example of this you have the, these new these human cell line um, uh, vaccines 
the human DNA that floats around, they did a study on this and they said, well, how much of this DNA uh, actually gets incorporated into your genome, into your DNA, uh, and how quickly does it happen? And they, they set up a study to, to replicate what might happen after a vaccination. And an incredible 1% of your genome was changed. In other words, the DNA from the dead fetus incorporated into your DNA. So you become a kind of genetic experiment. And what's astounding, how long did you think it took that to happen? Did they estimate it would take a lifetime, 10 years, 15 years, a month? How long do you think it took to happen? Instantaneous. It took 30 minutes. Right. 30 minutes. I, I nearly fell over. I mean, you hear me, I do lots of interviews on, on YouTube. So I say this because I can't believe mm. 30 minutes. Well, I mean, that, to, to, that whole to, issue of bypassing the mucous membrane, which is the normal route a virus takes to get into the human body, bypasses the lymphatic system, goes right into the blood, right into the organs. Uh, I mean, that, that, there's something that, you know, counterintuitive, obviously, about that. If, if, if the immune system, you know, I, I'm a, uh, I believe in a creator. I mean, I think God did a, created a, a, an, a miraculous machine, the human body. Uh, and the immune system, I mean, I'm told that we get cancer, we all get cancer uh, continuously throughout our lives, but we have this immune system that's able to fight it off. I mean, why can't we just build up the immune system, let it do its job, uh, and, uh, you know, if the virus comes along and has to pass through the, the mucous membrane, let the human body produce the antibodies. I mean, that's supposed, that's the way it's supposed to work. Let, let's uh, take a time out, we'll come back and uh, we can discuss that further as well. Dr. Graham Downing, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, pun intended. Right back with more. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with uh, Dr. Graham Downing. Uh, Give us a website, uh, Dr. Downing, where uh, people can uh, find out more. Well, I, I'm terrible at this, and I get sold off everywhere I go. We, I've been speaking and lecturing and teaching doctors and, and doing this stuff for a long time, and um, I'm absolute rubbish at this. But what I do have a site up. We put this site up for a conference we held uh, before, uh, a, a little ways back. And if you get onto that site and put your email in, then when the new site goes up, and I promise it is going to go up, uh, on that will be a load of information about this and also how you tackle these infections. The, the name of the site is 7, S-E-V-E-N, healthykeys.com. So 7, healthy keys, keys is K-E-Y-S dot com. And if you get there, ignore what's on it. But if you just put your email in, there'll be a few places to stick your email in. All right. Then, so it's um, under construction, well, in other words. It's yep. under, and it'll be ready soon. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> I, I was, you know, this is sort of getting right to the, the, the nub of the issue about, you know, vaccines and, and, and how they work. And, and I mentioned bypassing the mucous membrane and how doctors don't seem to know a heck of a lot 
about building up the immune system. Uh, I don't know how many courses in nutrition they take uh, in, throughout medical school. Somebody told me one. In seven years of medical school, they took one course on nutrition. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, you know, that God did a pretty, pretty uh, wonderful job in creating the, the, uh, the human body. Uh, and if we can simply, you know, build, build up, boost the immune system and allow it to do its job, it can fend off just about anything rather than, you know, stick this live virus right into the bloodstream where it can go right into the organs before the body has any opportunity to build up antibodies. I mean, that's very observant. The, I mean, look, I get what they're trying to do, and I understand it, but it's a 200-year experiment. And you know what? The hypothesis that it's going to work is... I think that the, the vaccination ship is like the Titanic now. I really do think it's going to... As much as they're trying to push it and mandate it, they tried this before, and, and, they, and they got defeated because people start to see the results, and you can't compress humanity. You can't do it. Humanity will turn. Um, and to, to answer your, your, your question, the inferred question, I'll, I'll give you an example of a trial. Uh, it was a double-blind, randomized, and fully controlled uh, scientific trial. And it was conducted in the University School of Medicine in Tokyo, Japan. And people have heard of this, and I'll say it because it's worth saying. And they were talking about flu. And they gave children daily doses of vitamin D3 and just what's called 1200 1200 IUs, international units, just 1,200 international units. And that's not a huge amount if you're treating someone with flu. We would use a very high dose, much higher than that over a short period of time, but let's just stick with this. So initially, they didn't see much difference in the, in, in the patients, but after a while in the children, those that built up uh, using this uh, daily dose of vitamin D3, they found uh, astoundingly that not only was it better, that it proved better than the vaccine, but it also proved better than the antiviral drugs that they were used. And I'll give you the stats. This is, this is what's written up in an international journal. It said the Japanese scientists writing in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition say that the antiviral drugs and illicit drugs, they only reduce uh, the risk of flu infection by 8% in children who have been exposed to infection compared with 50, that's 50% or greater reduction with vitamin D. Now, let me tell you, that's astounding. That should have been on the front of every newspaper on every TV channel. Right. And you know what? I, at the conference, I held up a list of if side effects due to vitamin D. And you know what? There was nothing on that list. Zero. A big, fat zero. Now, bearing in mind, you contrast that with what I just told you of the 40-odd children just in America alone paralyzed every month since 2003. There are possibly nearly 3,000 deaths. And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And when you look at the effectiveness of that vaccine, it's minus. It doesn't work. Hmm. Now, you tell me we're living in a sane society. You tell me that we have doctors that look at the research and we have doctors that are rational and are thinking clearly. The other, well, the big elephant in the room, I don't know how it works in the UK, but one of the things I find most disturbing... Uh, here is that you have you go to the doctor you need a prescription they write they write the script uh, but the odds are at some point that doctor may have been recruited to go on a speaking tour a an all expense paid uh, speaking tour in fact they and then they get paid for the speech uh, to some you know uh, before some drug company uh, and 
that's a, a huge conflict of interest. They're, they are, they're being wined and dined by drug companies, uh, and then they're writing a prescription for that said drug. I mean, that ought to be against the law. I mean, it's funny you, you say that. I mean, in, in a same world, absolutely should be against the law. Um, but it isn't. And well, if it is, no one's being prosecuted for it, or they should be. But this kind of malfeasance, this kind of skullduggery, uh, it goes on, and there's, um, there's a, a paper that was published on the com committee over here, Joint Committee on Vaccination Immunology, and this committee advises the government on what vaccines to give to kids and to adults, and the government says, okay, and they just carry on, they pass the information down. Well, the uh, Freedom of Information uh, request was made, and they received these documents over the last 30-odd years, and it showed an absolute catalogue of covering up, of suppressing research that would throw a bad light on vaccination, uh, promoting poor research that looked good for vaccination. Um, when they, uh, they gave this, this freedom of information over and they gave these papers over, they redacted names of people on the committee. In other words, they removed their names. And the reason is these, these guys are saying, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase, sorry, they're saying, well, wow, there's information, you know, there's, there's obviously a problem with this vaccine, but you know what? This information might come out. People are starting to look. It's hoped that we will avoid discovery. And then it says in the next line, oh, we haven't avoided discovery. And then blank, blank, blank suggests we do X, Y, Z. And they've taken their names off. And how can you have a public uh, public body or an advisory body that, that won't tell you their names? And of course, when people dig deeper, they start to find out some of these names. And guess what? Some of these people are being paid by the various, the, the very same companies that are involved in making the vaccines. There you go. Listen, I've got to take a time out. When we come back, I want to get your take on the, uh, the movie Vaxxed from Cover Up to Catastrophe and uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Graham Downing as we talk vaccines right here on The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. We are discussing vaccines with Dr. Graham Downing. He's uh, joining us in the UK uh, this evening, this morning. And uh, give us the website once again. We, I know it's under construction, but it will be up uh, uh, soon, and people should keep checking, and they'll get a, an email notice. The website again, Dr. Downing. There's a kind of old website up there, which we put on for a conference called 7, S-E-V-E-N, Healthy, keys.com k-e-y-s.com and just bung an email in and when the new site goes up we'll, we'll notify you all right so by now all of us are, are familiar late 90s uh, dr andrew wakefield published this study uh in in lancet suggesting vaccines caused autism and then um 2010 i think it was the study was retracted and his license was revoked uh, due to, uh, quote, ethical violations and a failure to disclose financial conflicts of interest and so forth. Uh, now, of course, we have this uh, a documentary called Vaxxed from cover up to catastrophe. It's an anti-vaccination film. And um, 
first of all, uh, it was supposed to, uh, to it was scheduled to premiere at the uh, the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival, and then it was withdrawn uh, by the festival. Uh, have you seen the f- the film, and, and what are your thoughts? I haven't seen the film yet, uh, unfortunately. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to seeing it. I don't think it's aired here yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just coughing there. Yeah, um, I, I talked about this because the title of the, the, the talk that I gave was Vaxxed, One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. And I opened up the talk when we talked about this movie, and I opened up showing... Um, an article in one of the, 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 the national papers here. And of course, it, it does what every paper does. When it, anything that comes up with vaccine, anything that comes up in research, anything to do with vaccines, you can never, ever, ever say they're unsafe. They will always twist the story, and the story will always come out that the vaccines are safe, regardless of what the data says. And they were quoting a, a particular doctor from America who's saying that, you know, the, the movie is, is not that great, and it's not telling you about the fact that he was struck off and blah, 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 blah. Long story short, the whistleblower um, in the story really has nothing to do with Wakefield in some ways. In other ways, it just confirms what he thought. Because you know what? He never ever said to anyone, don't vaccinate. And he he never necessarily said that vaccines cause autism. Um, What he was just saying was that there's something not right here and we need to look more into it. There's a correlation. There's a correlation, not causation. Yeah, and because he's so prominent, you know, he's a pretty pretty well-established and well-respected researcher and physician, they had to do, they had to cut his legs off, and they did, because they could not allow anyone of that stature to be indicated anywhere that there's a problem uh, with vaccines and any kind of link to autism. And then a stack of papers came out to disprove him, and I went through some of these papers and pulled them apart, as an expert witness would, to show actually... <laughs> that they were actually proving there was a cause. But what they did was they hid it in the data. Um, and if you want, I'll, 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 sh- I'll quote one of these papers. Yes, please. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to find it as, I, as we're speaking. Um, there was one in particular, and it was called the Danish study. And um, what they found in this Danish study, their conclusion after looking at all this data, this is where they, their conclusion, okay? So when your GP looks at it, When your consultant looks at it, this is what he reads. The conclusion says, this study provides strong evidence against the hypothesis that the MMR vaccination causes autism. Now, let's be straight here. I don't necessarily think that the MMR necessarily does cause autism or is the sole cause of autism. I think it's a multifaceted thing. And in some cases, MMR may act in a way that may act with other factors to bring about autism. So we need to be relatively clear about that. But anyway, long story short, when you look at this paper, um, the authors, they only performed a clinical review of only about 13% of the cases. And you can, that, that's not, that's not, if you're going to do a study, that's not good enough. Many of the children were too young to receive a diagnosis of autism anyway, because in Denmark, they don't give it to about five years of age. So that is also problematic. But what they did was, and you see this time and time again, is they perform ad- adjustments. So this is the adjustment they performed to the data. Now, you do not need a science degree to work out that this doesn't sound right. What they said was, okay, what about what do we do with children that we think had autism before they had the MMR? So bearing in mind, they've now got a group of kids that have autism and have been vaccinated with MMR. And do you know what they did with this group? They took them and they put them, they included them in the unvaccinated group. Now, that is astonishing. They effectively took people who had had, had the MMR and had autism and they put them in the unvaccinated group. Now, when you did that, it massively skewed 
the data. Of course it would. The data. Of course yeah. it would. How could they do that? <laughs> well, there you go. And this is what you see time and time again. Now, uh, a doctor called Dr. Blackshear was a clever guy, far cleverer than I. He looked at the data and he said, right, well, let's look at this as proper researchers without, you know, trying to prove a point. And let's just analyze the data correctly. Now, he analyzed the data and this is the result. Without, when you remove the skullduggery, he said at the population level, the risk of autism was therefore 26% higher in the group vaccinated with the MMR. A calculations the authors never reported. And in fact, they reported the complete opposite finding. So the case is far from being closed. I mean, this is, is not, uh, this is not over. I mean, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, uh, in your mind, is he vindicated? I think that in the sense that he never ever said um, you shouldn't vaccinate kids and he never ever said, look, I think this is a, a cause of autism and, and this is it. I think that he was being very honest and I think the hit job they did on him was, was, was astounding, quite frankly, when you look at it in the depth of how they went to go after this guy. Um, the re- I think he's vindicated. He's vindicated because the reality is, is that when you look at these, and there's another paper I quoted and there's another 11 papers, I think, that they released. And if you look at each one, there's huge skullduggery that's going on in these papers. Um, and as we, we alluded to in the beginning, the CDC whistleblower stated that what they did was when they found data that may, have, may prove some link between the vaccine and autism, what they did was they destroyed it. They met in a room, they got the data and they chucked it in a garbage can. Now, that's not science. And these people, are the te- they're at the top of the tree. The government scientists. Now, whether or not they, they're actually backtracking on that now and they're going to try and reinvent the data to make out there isn't a connection. But regardless, they, they, it shows you what happens when anything dares attack uh, vaccination. They lie. And, they t- and that's only the only one we know of. How many do we not know of? The classic example that, uh, again, I'll call them the orthodox physicians, the drug companies, the advocates for vaccines. The the example they always show up, they throw up is is polio and how vaccinations have virtually eradicated uh, polio. Um, but then the counter argument to that, from my understanding, is that what really if you look at the I guess the the uh, the, the you know, the historical uh, charts and so forth, what cured polio uh, was sanitation, improved sanitation. Uh, you know, people like uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt got polio, supposedly, and he used to, like a lot of children, he used to go for a, a swim in the Hudson River and, and, and uh, poor sanitation. He caught polio like millions of children around the world. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, do, does the historical data show that, that the vaccine eradicated polio or improved sanitation? Well, once again, you come down to what is honest. And when I went through university, one of the universities that I attended, you were just shown data, you shown here comes a vaccine, there goes a disease, happy days, go get your shot. Now, when you look back as you have done and you actually look at all the data, you realize that's not the case. Um, these, all these diseases were declining way, 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 way before they brought in these shots. Now, you can argue backwards and forward, but the data's there. And I'll take you back to the original thing I said. If the hypothesis of vaccination is correct, then you will not find that data. You will just find the same thing over and over again showing that it works. And the reality is it doesn't, and we have to address this. Polio, I mean, they, the reality with polio is, I mean, you've got 
what they did was they brought in this the vaccine actually caused uh, an outbreak of polio with it um, which you if you if you actually look back into the data you, you'll know and what they did was they had to the way they got rid of it they got creative they changed the criteria of diagnosis they changed the diagnosis to acute flaccid paralysis mm-hmm. um, so what you see is you see a chart of polio allegedly disappearing but you see acute flaccid paralysis just take off off to the moon and they also other other diseases which you might know of now would have been called polio like meningitis Guillain-Barre transverse myelitis all of these things people would have said were, pol- uh, were polio before. And a clear example of that is India. The Indian government was reportedly suing a very famous Mr. Gates um, because of his involvement in a, in a vaccination program. And people have argued this backwards and forwards. But the reality is, is they went over, they vaccinated. And there's almost a direct correlation between the vaccines going in and over 50,000 people getting, wait for it, non-polio acute flaccid paralysis which is clinically identical to polio the only difference is it's twice as deadly and you find this often the case that when you vaccinate you you almost create the problem you're trying to stop but you create a more virulent a much stronger problem and you know there's papers written on this and it's astounding that um, medical physicians don't open their eyes and, and their ears and actually just become independent doctors again because it's most likely the same there as it is here. They've lost their independence. You know, they're just, they seem to be just salespeople for drugs companies and they just do as they're told and they follow protocol and they don't challenge anymore. The data is there. You know, apples are going the wrong way. Therefore, their theory, their hypothesis has got to be removed. They ha- we have to have a different way of doing this. And, and my understanding also, uh, listen, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but I, uh, based on the reading I've done, in, in jurisdictions where they have had concerted polio vaccine campaigns, uh, they can never get the upper hand. Uh, in places like India, I mean, up in, I think in 2011, they declared India polio-free, except, as you point out, they had like a 12-fold increase in, in uh, this paralysis condition. But until they address basic sanitation... They can never get on top of polio. Well, I mean, to, you're absolutely right. And it's called polio provocation, is that you give the vaccine and you cause the disease you're trying to stop. It's even come from other vaccines like um, a diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. That's caused polio as well in the past. But I'll give you the, 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 the one classic disease everyone talks about is smallpox. Yes. And, well, smallpox, smallpox. Well, you can pull all the charts up from, and prove that it didn't eradicate smallpox from donkeys years ago. But let's use something more current. Let's use uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, okay, which was a presentation to the CDC. And this was in 2000 and June, June 19th to 20, by the infectious disease expert called Dr. Mack that no one would have probably ever heard of. But he is the most experienced man with dealing with polio, uh, sorry, smallpox. He worked in India and he, he tackled this disease for 40 years. And let me tell you what, what he says. He said, what would, if there was a terrorist attack introducing this into the States, what would you expect? He said, I would expect a small number of cases. He said, it's very difficult for this thing to spread. Okay, that's the, that's the first thing he said. He said, well, shouldn't all doctors and emergency room workers be vaccinated? I have the opinion, he said, that doctors and emergency room workers should not be vaccinated a priori as a category. I think this is true because there's a little likelihood of them catching the disease if they're exposed. He then says, well, what about general vaccination? He says, unexposed community members have a negligible risk. There is a substantial risk from a vaccine. As you'll hear in a moment, it is the single most dangerous live vaccine. 
And I'm just going to tell you just very briefly, last things he said, he says, what about informed consent? He said, look, if you want informed consent, he said, if it's honest, you'd have to say that the dangers would exceed the benefits of being vaccinated. And he said, but did, then they asked him, did vaccination eradicate smallpox? Now, this is the $10 million question. And we have about He's, 60 seconds here, uh, doctor. So, do you, Okay, he said, if people are worried about endemic smallpox, it disappeared from this country, not because of mass vac, vac, uh, herd immunity. It disappeared because of economic development. And that's why it disappeared from Europe and many other countries. And it will not be sustained here, even if it was several importations, I'm sure. It's not from the universal, vac, the universal vaccination that got rid of it. And that's the expert. Ah, informed consent, that's the rub, isn't it? And uh, it seems to be they don't, uh, they want to eradicate that from that term from the lexicon. Uh, Dr. Graham Downing, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. It's been very kind. I've enjoyed it. And I need to get to bed. <laughs> All right. Off to bed for sure, as they say. Dr. Graham Downing. All right, my website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Congratulations, you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. I'm your humble host, Richard Sarrett. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 uh, and 96.7 FM. 50,000 watts of peace and love coming at you from the Liberty Village neighborhood here in Toronto. Uh, hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations. Uh, the podcasts, of course, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. And uh, don't forget the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, which are both free downloads. you got to have them. They're terrific. Uh, and I mustn't forget uh, those of you, of course, who catch the live stream on YouTube when available through our HOA Hangout on Air. Incidentally, though, there is no HOA tonight. We'll resume the live stream next week. So, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee welcome. TV director, filmmaker, writer, professor, Jeremy Kagan is standing by from his home in beautiful Venice Beach, California. Uh, Jeremy and I met for breakfast a few months ago in Venice Beach. We were introduced to each other by our mutual friend and acquaintance, Paul Davids, who's been on the program recently. He's the author of An Atheist in Heaven. And uh, I learned that Jeremy Kagan, early on in his television career, directed episodes of Columbo, The Columbo with Peter Falk. 
And I must tell you, growing up, Columbo was my favorite and my brother David's favorite TV show of all time. So it was a real thrill hearing all these great stories uh, about Jeremy and working alongside the great late uh, Peter Falk. Uh, but tonight, this morning, uh, Jeremy is here to share with us a, another story, this one of a very personal nature that involves a remarkable near-death experience he had, and he'll share that in just a few moments. And just a reminder that we finally have an air date for the debut of Season 4 of the Conspiracy Show television program. Six new episodes will air across Canada on Vision TV starting Monday, June the 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Now write this down. Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV and the Season 4 will run through Monday, August the 1st. Again, Season 4, Conspiracy Show with yours truly, Richard Serrett, debuts across Canada on Vision TV, Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern, and that'll run through Monday, August the 1st. Incidentally, for my American listeners, and I love my American listeners, uh, Seasons 1, 2, and 3 of The Conspiracy Show are available on Hulu and Amazon.com. All right, near-death experiences. Can't wait for this. Jeremy Kagan is an internationally recognized director, writer, producer of feature films and television, and a tenured professor. Some of his feature credits include the box office hits, Heroes, the political thriller, The Big Fix, The Chosen, and The Journey of Natty Gan. Remember that one? Uh, among his many television uh, shows are Catherine, The Making of an American Revolutionary, and HBO's Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight. Uh, which received an ACE Award for Best Dramatic Special. His film Roswell, The UFO Conspiracy, garnered a Golden Globe nomination, and he directed the pilot for the hit series Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. I mentioned Columbo, of course, uh, Chicago Hope. Um, he's won an Emmy for Dramatic Series uh, Directing when he directed West Wing and Spielberg's Taken. He's made films for the Doe Fund, which is the most successful program in America, helping the homeless, and for the Bioneers, which organizes leaders in ecology and social justice. Uh, he, Professor Kagan teaches graduate courses at the University of Southern California in directing and has created the Change-Making Media Lab, which has made projects on cancer prevention, obesity, and ADHD. He has a new TV, or a new film, rather, a new feature film starring Noah Wiley uh, that he'll tell us about called Shot. Jeremy Kagan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm glad to be here. We talked about, or I mentioned, your, um, your, your CV off the top, and an impressive one at that. And it's, it's interesting, you're in the middle of editing uh, a new drama called Shot. And obviously, you know, one of the major themes of that movie, you know, Mortality, uh, which kind of nicely dovetails into our discussion uh, tonight about obviously about uh, life after death and uh, we're going to talk about your ebook uh, my death a personal guide a guidebook but but talk to, to us a little bit about this movie shot uh, shot's a dramatic movie about what one bullet does to three lives um, and it really is about honestly the obsession we have as a culture with our guns um, and so I'm trying to deal with the responsibility we all have to have whether we have a gun or we don't have a gun about how they're used, why they're used, and what happens as a consequence of their misuse, and particularly their easy availability for some people who really shouldn't be having them. So this is a powerful piece um, 
talking about how three wives intersect because a kid who's being bullied gets an illegal gun to protect himself, and the gun goes off accidentally and hits um, a man and his uh, wife, um, and uh, it hits the man. The wife is actually next to him. And what we do is we tell the story of all these three people, um, and we interweave their lives. And the man obviously is facing his own potential death and mortality. I mean, there are lines like saying, I don't want to die in this piece. And there's a possibility that, in fact, he will. There's something known as the golden hour once you get shot. And if you survive that hour, you may very well survive. How you survive, of course, is another question. That's also part of what our movie's about. But to survive in that hour becomes essential. And we tell that our story once the uh, shot has happened in real time for that hour. So we're actually experiencing everything any of us would experience from the moment we go down to waiting on the ground for someone to come to help, if they do come to help, to when they do, what happens to that, and the ride that takes to get us to a place where we might be able to be helped in an ER and everything that happens in the hospital. And we should so mention the, piece. it's starring Noah Wiley. Yes, it is. He does an amazing job. I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. Noah's been concerned about this issue himself, which is one of the reasons why he joined in on making this movie. And a great log line. Yep, yep, what one bullet does to three lives. In many ways, it's what one bullet does to 15 lives if you actually look at it because the EMTs and the ER doctors and the police and everybody's affected by it. Um, our medical system, insurance infected, everybody's affected by what happens with, with the one bullet. It's costly. Everybody pays. Right. So the theme, mortality and, and redemption, obviously play, play large in that. And we're going to talk about that. But I, I want to go back. It's interesting. You're a, you're a paradox. You're a... Um, what's the old saying? Uh, you know, a riddle wrapped in a mystery, dipped in a chocolatey coating. You're, you're, <laughs> you grew up on the East Coast, Mount Vernon, which is near the Bronx, and your yep. father was a rabbi, but more of a humanist, really, wasn't he? He was also um, the first clergyman in New York to get a PhD in psychotherapy. So he was taking his role as a as a person who was um, to be a service to his community that was both spiritual and, if you will, in this case, psychological. So um, he mixed those two, and that's kind of the environment I grew up in. But, but the, 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 the concepts of heaven and hell and an afterlife really was never discussed in your home, isn't, isn't that right? Yes, it's, it's true. Um, I grew up with um, what's known as Reform Judaism, and Reform Judaism was kind of a reaction to fanaticism in terms of, uh, sort of limited and very strict uh, formal behavior that was part of what Orthodox Judaism was about, which, by the way, was around for a thousand years. But once the, the community of Jews began to be more accepted within the European environment and certainly within our American environment, a lot of these things didn't have as much sway or hold. And so a lot of sort of the sort of behaviors like uh, um, being kosher, um, um, wearing a yarmulke, these things became not part of the reform movement. They felt that was a holdover from, uh, from uh, an ancient past and that the real values – um, didn't need to be reflected in specific kinds of limited, what they thought, behaviors. And part of that limited behavior was a whole concept of heaven and hell. But actually in Judaism, the concept of heaven and hell is not very strong. There is the concept of what's called the neshoma, which means the soul. That's very strong. Although when I grew up, I knew nothing about Jewish spirituality because my father was much more, I would call a, a, a pragmatist and a social rabbi in terms of trying to provide his community with both psychological help, but also trying to make them be more responsible as a community to other communities around them. So he was very involved at that time when he was a rabbi with the civil rights movement. Um, 
So that was the issue. It was really how to be a good ethical human being right here and now, not because you would get something better from it or be punished because you didn't do it. But being a good and ethical human being now, you do because it is the right thing to do now, not because you're going to get some payback from it. So that was the way I was raised. So the concept of heaven and hell was not something that was part of my youth, even though I had a clergyman for a father. Now, because you get a, I was able to get a good education, I got exposed to lots of other writers and, and, and artists who, in fact, did deal with heaven and hell, whether they were painters who painted heaven and hell, or whether they were composers who wrote music about that, or whether they were authors like Dante, who wrote an entire book about all the various, from, you know, the Divine Comedy, from Inferno to Paradiso. So I got exposed to others ideas of heaven and hell, but I didn't grow up with it as a threat. I was I was not one of these kids who, when they were five years old, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. We didn't get that. Right, right. And then, uh, I mean, you, an interesting, I'm not sure how you came to be the, the director for The Chosen, uh, which is, what, is that 30, 35 years ago you made that 1981, film? 1981. And what a, what a Although cast. it feels like yesterday to me. And what a cast. You had Maximilian Schell, one of my favorites. Yep. You had Rod Steiger, what a handful he must have been. Actually, he was fabulous because he knew that I knew more about the subject, which we were telling the story about, than he did. So he respected me. But I tell you, before I, meeting him, I was uh, intimidated because such a genius of an actor and I was a young director. So the idea of sort of telling this kind of incredibly experienced guy who had given such great performances what to do was intimidating, but inevitably he saw that you know, I cared deeply about the subject, and the subject really was about tolerance. That's what the movie was really about. Right. Can, uh, we, can, we, can we accept differences? And um, so it was It was kind of a magical experience working with him because he was so committed to to giving us the best performance he could. And um, it, was, it was fabulous to watch him um, take on a character, both the look of that character as well as the accents of that character, and become steeped in who this particular person was. And that's one of the geniuses of a great actor, that they actually can become the character that they play. And for those who haven't seen the movie, it's uh, Robbie, a young Robbie Benson, a teenage, there's a, a reformed Jew, uh, and an orthodox or a conservative Jew and a, a befriends a, a, a young conservative Jew. Actually, it's, orthodox a, it's, a young, it's, it's sort of a modernist Jew, young Jew, who um, this is right during the end of World War II, um, who befriends a very ultra orthodox, and in this case, Hasidic, which is a very specific um, uh, approach to Judaism. Um, those people who have been to Israel and gone to that area called Mea Sharim may have seen lots of people who look like these. They, they almost look like they've come from another century. Um, they wear clothes that are specific to them, um, oftentimes wearing black all the time. And um, if you're in certain areas in Brooklyn, um, these are also areas where there are lots of Hasidim. It's a group of people who had um, a very, very specific and very um, strict uh, behavior code, um, but also have a deep connection to the spiritual side of Judaism, which, by the way, is something, as I said, I didn't grow up with. So when I was making this movie, The Chosen, and doing my research, I began spending time with the Hasidic groups and individuals in Brooklyn, and I got exposed to their world, and, and, and I got exposed also to the spirituality that was part of their culture, and that spirituality is deeply embedded with ideas of the soul, 
and the soul's um, emergence and its development and its connection with the eternal and the idea that it, even there is a concept of a kind of a little bit different than, let's say, Eastern religions, but there's also a concept of a regeneration, a kind of rebirth, a re restoration of, of, of your being so that when you die, in this sense, you don't die. Um, idea again, there's a, a kind of distinction between um, two ideas of the world that exists now and the world that is to come. Now, some people might talk about that as heaven, but that's not really what they're talking about. I think they're really talking about the idea that there's the potential of all of us to truly be compassionate toward each other, to truly be tolerant of each other, to truly do good work to help each other, to be of service. And when we all are doing that, then the world to come is now. All right, Jeremy, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about uh, your initial experience in a Lakota sweat lodge and how that sort of changed the trajectory of your spiritual life. Director, producer, writer, artist, professor, filmmaker, Jeremy Kagan is with us and we'll uh, continue this conversation on the other side. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We are back with a filmmaker, professor, producer, director, Jeremy Kagan, and um, we'll tell you how to get his uh, e-book. It's called My Death, A Personal Guidebook. The website is The Near Death and Life of Jeremy Kagan, K-A-G-A-N. Uh, so... How did you come to uh, find yourself in a uh, in a Lakota sweat ceremony? Well, I was lucky enough to have some friends who were sort of exposing each other to new ways of looking at life, new experiences. These were men's group that I attended with various people, so I was going through that at this particular time. So the sort of the mid nineties. And one of the things that one of my friends was um, offering was to experience a sweat lodge. And I knew nothing about sweat lodges. I had no idea what they were. Um, and what they are, I found out, was something that's literally, it's done all around the world. And it's been done for thousands and thousands of years. And essentially, it's where you enter a dark, very hot space for a certain amount of time. And because of the heat... And the sweat, and for me, a lot of discomfort, there's a process of kind of purification. It's kind of hard to lie when you're really, really hot and uncomfortable. And in the Lakota ceremony, which um, has been the Lakota have allowed to this to be experienced by people who have been not part of the tribe over the last uh, maybe 30 years, and that particular experience you go through a number of stages when you're in this darkness. You go through a stage of where you do prayers for yourself. You do another stage where you do prayers for other, 
there's another stage where you give away something that's that, you know that's that you're holding on to and there's a quiet phase it lasts oh, maybe an hour an hour and a half and extremely hot and uncomfortable and i've done a, done a number of these and they've been very kind of remarkably transformative in one i remember with my eyes open in the darkness and this is not the norm for me at all, although I'm a major dreamer and I dream every night and often remember the dreams and they're, they're, they're vast kinds of experiences. But this was looking out in the darkness, in the blackness, and actually seeing another sort of dream in its reality while I was totally awake. It was an amazing experience, which I'd had at another sweat lodge. And this was the day before my birthday, which was in December, cold up in the mountains of, 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 of uh, Malibu here in California, very cold even. And I was doing a sweat. I thought it'd be a good way to bring in the next year and sort of clean myself up and let go of some things. So I was doing this. And in the process, of, but it wasn't very effective. It wasn't one of the ones that I wasn't having the kind of visions that I just described or anything particular about this one. But as I stepped outside of the lodge, it was very cold and the lodge is incredibly hot. And I fell to the ground and I literally, in the process of, falling to the ground, lost total control of my body. Was it the shock of going from the extreme heat into the cold air? Yes. I mean, if you were later, as I talked to a number of doctors to find out about this, this literally was hypothermia. Now, in, in hypothermia, which is the, you know, going from hot to cold, you actually can die. People do. I didn't know this, of course, at the time, nor did I know this until many you know, weeks, months later when I was talking to people about my experience and that was the, the, the medical Western scientists wanted to say, well, what happened? You know, what could have happened? And that's what, you know, if, if a doctor had been around, maybe he or she would have recognized this as hypothermia. But what happened specifically was I lost all control. I could not move anything. I could not, in fact, soon feel anything. So all of my physical sensations were gone. At first, I thought I'd get over this in a couple of minutes. I was just having some strange fainting spell. And, you know, like a fainting spell, you'll get over it. But I was noticing I wasn't getting over it at all. In fact, what was happening is it was getting more challenging in the sense that not only could I not move anything or feel anything, I also couldn't see anything anymore. And I stopped hearing as well. Oh, boy. So my entire, if you will, body functions shut down. Now, I thought at first I was supposed to be directing the next morning on a set. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> that's the end of that. You know, my career is going to take a definitely down turn you're when actually, I show actually... up to set because I'm in a hospital. And the reason is because I was in some sweat lodge. That won't, that won't scan well in Hollywood. That's interesting that you're actually having this conscious process. Exactly. In fact, one of the things that was incredible about this entire experience is that what I learned was that consciousness never ends. Mm -hmm. Your body ends, your ego definition of self ends, but consciousness doesn't. But at this time, it was still my consciousness. It was still Jeremy Kagan thinking, I can't, won't be on a set tomorrow. And you're trying very hard to hold on to that. Exactly. It was then Jeremy Kagan thinking, my, you know, what they're going to take me, they're going to call paramedics. I'm going to be taken to some kind of hospital. And since I can't see and can't talk, my family will come. I won't recognize them. I won't be able to communicate with them. If this stays the same, I'm going to lose all connection to everybody. And I know. And then the next thought came, which was, what if I'm dying? 
And I began to believe that must be what's happening. And I, in the sense of, although I couldn't move, there was a kind of like energetic sensibility. Well, if I hold on to all my energy, like if we all held, you know, you hold your breath for as long as you can, I'll be able to hold on to life. And I, in some fashion, tried to do that, to hold on to me. Right. And inevitably, like trying to hold on to your breath, I couldn't hold on any longer. And I let go. Hmm. And that letting go was the most blissful, peaceful, serene, calm, almost joyful flowing out of everything in every direction. And it was so stunning in its perfection and ease that literally, if that's what dying is, wow, dying is beautiful. And what did you see at this point? Nothing. Nothing. I was in, but I was still conscious. And when I had this blissful experience and then my consciousness, which was still mine, said, wow, that was amazing. If that's the transition of death, if it's that easy, you know, some cultures talk about actually part of Orthodox Jewish culture talk about death is like taking a hair out of a glass of milk. So gentle in that transition. If that was true, which seemed to be true at this moment for me. Wow. But then I asked the question, what next? Mm -hmm. I still had a sense of time. What next? Well, now my mind started to, because it was still my mind, started to bubble and bubble and bubble. And in the process, it said, what if there is a heaven or a hell? And then I thought, well, I, you know, I've been kind of a good person, but I've also been kind of a schmuck too. <laughs> and I thought, what if I were to go to hell? And instantaneously, I went to my version of hell. Your well, version. I say my version because it was specific to who I am. But it was absolutely horrendous. Can you spend a few moments telling us what your version of hell looked like? That I'm going to leave to anybody because it's in a way eschatological and grotesque. So better to read it. And my book is is filled with illustrations. They're pretty weird illustrations. You'll get that hell if you want. But I I think that anybody who's ever even thought about hell will probably go to his or her own hell. But here's the issue. You don't feel anything. It's all gone. Remember, I said I couldn't feel anything. So even though there was a visual capacity to it and a kind of, you know, um, judgmental capacity to it, I suddenly realized it was literally an illusion. It was like a projected movie, Mm. how we believe in these things. I make these things. If they're really good, we think they're happening. Well, as it should be with a filmmaker. Yeah, a manifestation manifestation of the mind. Exactly. But my mind didn't realize until my mind realized, as you just said, this was merely an illusion. This Mm. was a projected bunch of images. And the second I had this realization, it was gone. It dissolved. Just like, you know, turning off the television, it was gone. And what I realized at this moment was that I was in a place that was beyond 
judging things bad and good. It was beyond that. It was a place of oneness where both the most horrific and the most beatific are all part of one thing, all connected. And by this realization, I stepped out of that place of judgment, which limits us so much in our own lives. We're constantly judging ourselves and constantly finding wrong with ourselves and wrong with others, and therefore separating from each other. This was a realization that that's, this was a place and a, and a kind of space without being out of space that was beyond that kind of judgment. This was a place of oneness. And then I began, which I later learned because I knew nothing about this until after the experience, a very kind of classic near-death journey where I was in a kind of motion passing through, in this case, a misty field, um, which is almost full of clouds, seemingly to be on a kind of almost diagonal movement upwards. I was on a ride in a way. Um, again, feeling incredibly peaceful now because I was out of the illusion of hell. And sensing to my right and left beings that I couldn't quite see, but they felt like, are these my... My, my parents and grandparents and, and ancestors from my past and great past, and are they sort of there? Are they watching? Are they communicating in some subtle way? Uh, some people I know from talking to many people since in many years since this experience, I've had near-death experience, talk about hearing voices, encountering people. This was more suggestions of. Right, but, but still very much the classic NDE. Yes, yes. Um, and again, the if there's feeling to be applied here, there was wonder. There was and no judgment and no fear. Fear was gone. Hmm. So all there was was the awesomeness of whatever was going to be the next, if you will, encounter. And three days after the experience, I remembered what that next encounter was, which was so profoundly shocking because it was, and this experience, you know, some people say that they've had their lives replayed for them. Right, right. My experience was I had the history of humanity replayed for me, that everything that Again, limited by the filter of this particular consciousness, my consciousness, that is Jeremy consciousness, which had already been gone, but limited by that filter. Everything I'd ever experienced, everything I'd ever read, everything I'd ever seen, every piece of history I ever knew, every piece of music I ever heard, every movie, every television show, everything that I'd experienced, all happened simultaneously. Now, I don't even know how words sort of limit you to say what this is, but it's like people say that, you know, they have the experience of their whole life passes for them in a nanosecond. Right. I'm just, I have, I'm having a vision from that Albert Brooks movie when he's being represented at the review by Rip Torn. <laughs> yes, great. <laughs> you, you had no legal representation. <laughs> no, I was beyond needing one at this moment. This was just, this was merely the ride. This is not needing to defend myself. All right. I was, I was already there. <laughs> I have to... Defenses were all gone. Okay, we're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. Jeremy Kagan, producer, director, writer, professor. And uh, the author of a uh, an ebook entitled "My Death: A Personal Guidebook." Uh, you can get the Kindle edition, and all you need to do is go to the Near Death and Life of Jeremy Kagan, and it's illustrated by Jeremy with some beautiful paintings. 
and some bizarre paintings as well as you can imagine. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we're back with Jeremy Kagan, My Death, a personal guidebook. It's an e-book and again the website, The Near and Sorry, the near death and life of Jeremy Kagan.com, K A G A N for Kagan. All right, so um, when uh, we were so rudely interrupted, the, the, um, the review or this, uh, you know, experiencing everything that you had experienced in this life, everything, every movie you'd seen, every book that you'd read, all comes flooding into your mind instantaneously. I mean, I can't even, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. Uh, it was like an explosion, as if you took everything and, and squished it into one nanosecond. Everything you've ever experienced, in a sense, this was the life. But it wasn't, you know, a review of my childhood. I mean, if that stuff was there, but there was some so much more sort of profound beings there. Gandhi was there. Moses was there. Um, those are people who know from Eastern philosophy. But the Buddha was there. Ramana Harshmi was there. Jesus was there. They were all sort of there within this sort of explosion, all of their sort of my awareness, all the, and also, you know, some negativities or the, the horrors of war. I mean, you know, and some great artists, they were, they were all occurred to me as as one occurrence. I mean, it's like if we took everything we're doing right now and squished it into one moment and all the words were able to be heard. And here's an interesting thing. I don't think I've ever actually said this before, but that um, in the, the, the revelation on um, Mount Sinai of what is known as the Torah, right. which is uh, the Old Testament, this was supposedly given and I didn't learn this to many, many years later. I didn't know this before. Simultaneously, all the words were heard at the same time. And this was, a, you know, a spiritual sort of revelation for a million people that experienced this. Like a digital download. It, it exactly all compressed into one moment in a sense the matrix moments when you shove one of those things in and a second later you know how to do all the martial arts. This was all of that. All of history, all of human experience, all of its creativity, all of its negativity, all in one. And then I moved past that. And I moved past that into the firmament. And at this point, again, with incredible serenity um, and, and joyful ease, um, and, and as I said, no non-judgment, I sensed that whatever consciousness that I actually was at this moment, which was just consciousness, just receiving, in a way, just receiving whatever was to be received, that there was a kind of goal that I was about to 
or this beingness of me or the consciousness that I, I was at this moment become part of the firmament as if I was about to become one of the, a star within the gazillions of galaxies that exist. And that's what, where I was headed. And then all of a sudden, the entire universe, the cosmos, contracted and it contracted into nothingness. And at that point, I did lose consciousness. That was kind of a nothingness that was the end of everything. It's interesting. You, you lost consciousness, although <laughs> to, the, to those on the outside looking at your, down at your, your body, they would say that you had already lost consciousness. Yes, that would, I probably, you know, as I talked to other people, this was from their point of view, this was a 45 minute experience that they saw and they left me alone. I think someone had taken my pulse earlier on and just thought, always oh, having come some kind of weird, you know, experience, just let him have the experience. Um, and there was, from their perceptions, there was some, some movement during the latter part of that time and some noise that was made from this particular body. I suspect if there's an understanding of, to explain anything, that there was probably a minute or two, maybe even less, when the hyperthermic reality was such that my being was literally in jeopardy. That is, my physical being was in jeopardy. And I suspect all of this that happened that, you know, it's taking me, you know, a book to write, not that long of a book, but I could spend lots of time defining it, probably all happened in a nanosecond as well. A nanosecond. But when you were having this experience... Did you have any concept? Did it seem like it was going on for hours or? It seemed long, but a sense of, and since there was movement and change, that does suggest time. Um, but there was jumps in time, like you can have in a dream. Um, so there was a, 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 a kind of, it, it had its own time. And I was, again, because I felt that I was on a, on a death journey or the journey post-death, I think the whole sense of time was gone. So I can't, you know, I can't really define it in terms of the words that we define in terms of time. Right. And at that, just before, you know, the lights went out, had you made your peace and had you said to yourself, I'm ready. I want to, wherever I'm going, I, I like this ride. I'm going. The two times that I, I that, that was true was the first was when I actually had to let go. Initially, I did everything I could to not let go. In other words, I didn't want to die at all. And I don't want to die now, I agree. even with this experience. I'm not interested in dying because I have no idea what the next experience when I really do die is going to be vastly different. Although they do say that if you die before you die, when you die, you don't die. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> we'll wrap our heads around that as we head on into a break. My Death, a personal guidebook. Jeremy Kagan is a director, producer, writer, professor, and uh, you can, you can uh, download that book at the near death and life of jeremykagan.com, and we'll continue this conversation in mere moments. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarek from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Jeremy Kagan is with us. You will know him from such films as The Big Fix, Heroes, The Journey of Natty Gann, um, The Chosen, which we discussed earlier, and uh, his new film, which is uh, called Shot, One Bullet, or one, uh, what's the log line again for this, uh, for the movie? What, what One Bullet Does to Three Lives. Yes, and that should be in theaters when? Well, we'll, we'll hope it's in theaters in the fall, but we're just finishing it, so the time of distribution has not been locked in yet. All right, and it stars uh, Noah Wiley, so people will look forward to that, I'm sure. Okay, so we were in the middle of this, um, well, nearing the end, I guess, of this uh, near-death experience. You came out of a, uh, a sweat lodge. You were up in the mountains of uh, Malibu, and uh, anyone who's been to one of these Lakota sweat ceremonies will know how hot it, you know, it can be. Imagine you're at the club for a, a, you know, for a schwitz, but it's, I mean, you know, very intense. You yeah. come out of that into this cold weather, and you collapse, and as you, uh, you know, re- were recounting, had this incredible uh, near-death experience. So the lights go out, and... You know, it's interesting. Happens? The lights went on rather than went out. Ah, Okay. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the gift of this in, you know, is that I got to learn something that I didn't know. And I got to learn that consciousness itself never ends, that your body does, um, you know, who you are at this moment. That's going to end. Uh, not something to look forward to, I'm sure. But the one thing that doesn't end is consciousness. Now, maybe that's a motivation for you to say, "Mm, does that mean is there an afterlife and could I come back? Well, in this case, I came back as me. A friend of mine once said, you know, you're lucky. You could have come back as somebody else, which is quite true. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I was out far enough that when I came sort of zooming back into literally zooming back into Earth and then zooming back into the Malibu months and zooming back into where the sweat lodge was and then zooming back into that body, it happened to be this body I'd left. But maybe I could have taken the left turn and gone into some other body. That's right. That's right. That's my is that old uh, line from Woody Allen. I think it's from Sleeper, the. And it's my great fear of reincarnation is that I'll have to sit through the ice capades again. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things is, you know, there's also this whole idea of a reoccurrence that that in fact you live your life over and over and over again from some uh, mystical uh, sages who talk about that until you maybe get it right. Right. So were you disappointed when you found yourself uh, back in your body, essentially? Actually, what I, when I gained back my physical capacities um, where I could actually begin to move. And I kind of moved around like a child, honestly. I literally, I sort of like in that sense was being reborn as a little being. But as I looked around, I felt such open-hearted love for everything. There was this delight and joy about being able to feel the cold, to look at the mountains around me, to look at the people that were still by the fire, to see the fire. And I just felt everybody radiated this kind of wonderful, positive energy. And I, my heart was so non-judgmental that I was just in absolute joy to be where I was with all the beings that I was with. So my return was this gift of enormous sense of open-hearted love mm. for everything and everyone. Now, 
you know, after a number of hours, I get back into my car, and well, I had this fabulous experience, but part of my returned mind and in returned judgmental mind, it didn't all disappear. You know, it wasn't like I was... Some people have transformative experiences like this, and they are forever changed. Yes, yes. Even physically, they they I've physically change, but not 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 so much so that I become uh, uh, I, that I've surrendered all my judgments. I still have them, and I still have my doubts, and I still have all my neuroses. They haven't gone away. Well, all that you know, the I, ego and all that comes with the spacesuit, right? So yeah, it's absolutely very well spoken. We're prisoners in a sense. But there's also recognition, though, that that now that I am back in quote my spacesuit, I can still look at you in yours and say, "You in there?" Mm -hmm. As Ramdas says, right, "Wait, right. I'm in here. I don't know how I got in here, but I'm here too." And in the sense, we both can recognize we're far more than the spacesuit that we're in. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. You know, I I've gone to movies where that have been you know, momentarily transformative. And you, and you leave the movie feeling so inspired and it's like, what am I doing with my life? And I've got to get out there. I've, you know, why can't we all get along? You know, th those types of movies. And you've made those types of movies. It's true. Uh, now. But uh, as you say, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't transformative 100%. I mean, but there are still remnants there. Obviously. I think there's, a, there's an awareness and a memory. Hmm. And, it's an it's a gift, honestly, for you to be talking to me because then I am re-experiencing this for myself. And you know, if this affects a, a listener and they say, "Wow, you know, that sounds like something that to be considered," that the consciousness is uh, is that that maybe my fear of death doesn't have to be quite what it was because there's the kind of ease in the process of moving from one place to another, if you will, one one sort of form to another from this one into another that is can be quite beautiful and peaceful and joyful even and then there's some wonder and awe that may i experience afterwards since i did experience that it's good for me to remind myself because you know you can forget when things are get get kind of heavy in your own life that in fact you've have experienced bliss and joy and if you remind yourself that you've experienced bliss and joy to some degree it brings it back into your consciousness and you may behave you know a little differently knowing that that's true has, that you can feel love for everybody and everything has has how has that experience changed you as a filmmaker well, I think I've taken on a greater responsibility in the kinds of movies that I make in the sense that that I feel like when you're telling somebody a story, you are also shifting their consciousness to some degree. And you can tell them a story that, in fact, will make them feel negative or bad or irrelevant. Or you can tell them a story that potentially inspires them to feel better about themselves, maybe inspires them to want to do something for others. And the kind of movies I've been making over the last years have been more in that vein. Um, and um, one of the things we have at the, that I established at the University of Southern California, where I'm a professor, is a, something called the Change Making Media Lab. And the Change Making Media Lab actually makes movies, advocacy movies for various organizations um, that are trying to make our world better. Um, whether they're health organizations or environmentally concerned organizations. And so a lot of my energy as a creator has been to do this kind of filmmaking. And I'm sure that it's responsive to some degree to that experience. And I feel also that, that just the way I relate to people um, allows me to be reminded 
of the connection that we really all have on the deepest level. So there are times when that also functions well. It also has helped me deeply, by the way, in terms of working with actors, because it's allowed me to understand that we, in, ever, in a way, are everybody that ever was, just like that part of the experience that I mentioned. And therefore, we can find that person within us. We can find the... The 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 the, uh, the Mother Teresa in us, as well as obviously the Attila the Hun. They're both there, but we can make a choice to. In fact, that's what life is about now: making choices to be that kind of person because that kind of person already exists within us, right. and that's a reflection of this experience as well. Self-actualized, in the, in the sense, yes, yeah. knowing that there's so much more to you than you think. In fact, sometimes thinking is a limitation. And by the way, I have to say this quickly because, you know, that the title, that the, the access to, to this book can also be accessed just by typing in the words, my death, uh, a personal guidebook, and it'll come up, you know, on, on uh, you know, Amazon on your computer so if, you, if you were interested in learning more from what I experienced. Uh, I, I want to talk to you briefly about, um, uh, I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, Paul Davids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had breakfast in, in Venice Beach, and, and Paul was on uh, this program recently talking about An Atheist in Heaven, the book he co-authored about right. uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. Yep. And uh, I wanted to get your take. I mean, I'm, I, I know that Paul has sort of kept you up to date on that whole investigation, but after now having gone through this experience, how do you, how do you perceive, I mean, this is a, an after-death communication that has taken place supposedly between... Uh, Forey Ackerman, Forrest J. Ackerman, a, um, a literary uh, agent, science fiction writer, the editor of, um, of you know, famous monsters of Filmland magazine, and, and Paul, right? Uh, all well documented in this book. What do you make of that whole investigation? Well, Paul and I met um, because Paul shared with me. We both were the uh, in the initial group at a place called the American Film in- Institute, and. Paul shared with me his experience with his children of um, um, actually seeing a UFO and then his pursuit of finding out what that really was. And in the process, the two of us ended up making a movie um, that was uh, called it's called Roswell. It's a great movie. It's it for Showtime. And it's about the UFO conspiracy to some, some degree. And so what I went through in this process of meeting all, all kinds of people who had all these kinds of experience in making this story about the famous Roswell incident, uh, what I, I understood on another level, and it's in the movie itself, is that, and this reflects my, my near-death experience, or sometimes I call through-death experience, that in, in essence, there is this reality, this physical reality that we know. And there are coterminous realities that we access through many other ways. And in those coterminous realities, we actually are in communication with potential beings, certainly energies, from other, if you will, levels of existence. And so, it, it, in fact, one person once said to me, you know, it, 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 we don't live in a universe. We live in multiverses, right. which is something that physicists now sometimes are talking about as well, mm-hmm. which means there's an overlapping of different realities. This reality is so dense that, you know, and so, and so complex that it's enough for most of us <laughs> just to deal with it. But there are access and openings to other realities that, in fact, are going on simultaneously with ours. 
Now, when we try to either visualize or verbalize what they are, we are limited by the limits of our visual sensibilities. You know, we only see so much. There's lots more but in, in terms of literally what's in front of our faces that we just don't see because our eyes and brain don't allow us to, to see them, but they're there. Um, and of course, that, that applies to language itself. So what happens is that events happen. We've all had the coincidences that we just don't understand. Some of us have had, you know, I've seen that ghost over there or or potentially actually, quote, seeing UFOs. I believe all of these things are true, that there is an interface of realities. And if our minds can be deeply open and not limited by our thinking, then that deeper consciousness can sometimes allow for the communication and even the interface events to happen, like you're talking about in Paul's book, and then, in fact, are talked about so much in various UFO experiences. So for me, this is all part of a deeper on wider truth that is happening simultaneously to the ones that we experience all the time. And you studied uh, when you were in, I guess it was graduate school at the American Film Institute. That was uh, Greystone Mansion. That was haunted, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I must say, working late at night at 2 or 3 o'clock, and I'm not one into ghosts, actually, but working late at night, sometimes on some of our projects, they, there were creaks in the walls that one would wonder what they were all about. Um, but, you know, I work, listen, I work with a, a, a phenomenal animal that was part wolf on this movie, The Journey of Natty Gann. Yes, and there was a yes. moment when we were approaching a, um, uh, we were going to shoot in this little environment, this little uh, room, and all of a sudden this, this animal wouldn't go in the room. Mm. We found out later that someone had been killed in that room. Wow. And clearly the animal picked up yeah. that energy that was still existent in that space and wasn't going in there. I believe it. I believe it. Jeremy, yes. I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for spending the time. My Death, a personal guidebook, and you can get that at Amazon.com or The Near and Death, sorry, The Near Death and Life of JeremyKagan.com. Thanks again, Jeremy. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and come home.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.